Welcome to Return of the King, Straight Talk About End Times. This is not a sermon series. This is a short-term class that we're offering over the course of about eight weeks here beginning in December 2015 uh, and going through at least January of 2016. Uh, We're going to look at what leads up to the return of Christ, what comes after the return of Christ, and everything in between. And so um, we're going to be trying to take this from a biblical standpoint rather than a popular culture standpoint. Some of what we talk about here may be different than what you've heard before. And so thanks for tuning in with us. If you're listening online as we're going through this course, please feel free to email me uh, through our website or neil, N-E-I-L, at cypressstreet.org anytime with any questions you might have and I will certainly try to get to them as we go through this course. Uh, Thanks for listening. Here we go. This week's class uh, recording got started a little bit late and so it comes in in the middle of a reading of Psalm 98 and we just began the class by talking about how we've said that one of the things that happens when Christ returns is judgment. Uh, This week is about that and everything that goes with it. And along with judgment comes descriptions of God's wrath, the concept of hell. And it's described with many different images and in many different ways as a final, definitive, all-encompassing sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately for us, we carry a lot of wrath and hell and judgment baggage that we need to try and unload. I would guess that every one of us listening to this have been brought up to dread judgment, I mean to fear it. We are mortified by the prospect of being told that Jesus does not know us, mortified of the prospect of eternal torture and damnation. Uh, Certainly, the Bible's descriptions of judgment and hell should elicit a fearsome awe and a good measure of sobriety. But in Scripture, ultimate judgment is what God's people look forward to, and not in some kind of like sadistic way of wanting to watch the world burn. It's a day of judgment is the day of our hopes. If we dread it, chances are we have the wrong idea about it. And so, um, you know, check out Psalm 98, and, and our recording starts with, Kind of in the middle of that. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Okay, so there you've got an entire chapter that's just, man, everything praise the Lord, everything be excited, everything, you know, give God applause. And then at the very end it says, because, why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... You know, we see that time and again in Scripture that the God, you know God's judgment is just you know is what's longed for. The, God's people long for God to set things right. The people who are suffering. I mean, think about you know if we were being uh, persecuted for our faith the way many Christians are, we'd probably be praying a lot more heartily every day that Christ would come. And, and that's been the longing 
of Christians and of God's people even before that for a long time. So, uh, you know, maybe we need to move from a judgment dread to a judgment hope. And I hope that as we uh, travel through talking about these, this topic of judgment today, that maybe it'll help our views a little bit on that and help us to do that. What kind of things do you guys think of when you think of God's judgment? Like what typically comes to mind? Standing in front of the line and him going through yeah. word for word what mm. I've done and haven't done. And you might be standing a while. <laughs> <laughs> a long line. <laughs> a long line of people. We've all got our long list. The world judges us. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, or it's just when you think of judge, you think of a judge. Mm. Was it you that said, um, I, I don't know, somebody, it stuck in my head, that um, God sent his only son to die for us. Wouldn't he be on our side? I mean, you know, that just makes so much sense to me. If I gave my child to die for you, I'm going to be pulling for you. Mm-hmm. And we're told that, uh, I mean, Jesus says, the Father's not going to judge, I'm going to judge. He's put me in charge of that. I'll be the one that's judging for you. And this is the guy, like we said, yeah, that, that gave his whole life for us, gave his, I mean, he went to the cross for us. He loves us that much. And uh, who would you rather have, you know, standing in that seat? And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, well, let's just talk about a few things with regard to uh, judgment. And the first thing I want to say, and that, that's your first, you know, J blank there's judgment. And, and the next one is evil annihilated. Evil annihilated. So one of the things that, you know, if you've ever read Revelation very much, um, you might remember something about some seals and some trumpets and some bowls of wrath, right? And there's like seven of each. There's seven, you know, the Lamb comes and opens seven seals. And as each seal is broken, a new aspect or a new something happens on earth. And, uh, and then the trumpets blow, seven trumpets, and each, with each trumpet blast, you know, something different happens and or like a rider rides out and destroys something or, you know, something apocalyptic happens with each step. Well, the point being that, you know, each of those is seven, which is a number of completeness in ancient Jewish history and in apocalyptic literature. And so when you look at that, you know, the God's judgment pouring out in seven times seven times seven it's complete. And so we say evil is completely uprooted. That's the goal. I mean, God is going to reboot creation. There will be no trace of evil left. And so that's why judgment has to be complete. Judgment has to be total. And evil has to be completely uprooted and annihilated. We can't have any of it left. And so that's one of the goals of judgment is that evil would be annihilated. You know, along with that, the we can say safely that the current order of things, this first order or former order of things, 
will completely pass away. Uh, someone look up Revelation 21 4. People walk away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, sadness, crying, or pain because all the old ways are gone. Yeah, and so some translations say the old ways, some say the former ways, some say the first things, um, the old order has passed away. All that was evil is gone. So that is part of this judgment thing. Uh, another part of it is that the judgment will, will involve true justice. True justice, not the brand of justice that we get. You know, our justice in this world is imperfect at best, right? And there's people who are innocent that go to jail or die. There's people who are guilty that get off. And we're constantly mad about that. And there's people in the world that are doing all kinds of evil and just like wiping people out. And they're getting a free pass on it for some reason because there's, you know, no oil where they live or something. And so the world doesn't seem to care about those lives as much as other lives. There's just lots of injustice in the world and things don't always get set right the way that they should. But when Jesus shows up, there'll be true justice served, such as worldly judges were never able to serve. Uh, Another part of this is that who's who will be revealed. Uh, And that was part of what we already said when Christ returns, that who's who will be revealed. And uh, I just want to spend a little time on that today. Let's look at, um, for one, let's look at Romans 8, 19 and Matthew 25, 31 and following. We'll start at Romans 8, 19. Someone read that for us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, the revealing of the sons of God. Showing who are his. So that's part of what happens when Christ returns. And Jesus tells a sort of parable about this. Uh, kind of a famous passage uh, 25-31 it's kind of a different sort of parable I don't know if it's actually technically qualified as a parable it's a little bit unique but I'll read to you a little bit of it we'll just kind of skip around a little bit but we'll start at verse 31 of Matthew 25 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him and then he'll sit upon his glorious throne All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. That that reminds me now that uh, you know when we had the me and God are like uh, sheep and a shepherd, and that shepherd guy that they interviewed said uh, that when he comes up, if there's other people's sheep in there, he just whistles and they part like the Red Sea, just. And their sheep go this way, and his go come to him, you know. And so that's kind of like the imagery that I have of this, you know. Christ returns, and those who are his know him, and he knows them. And, and those who are, don't know him and aren't his, they know it too. Things are separated. Then the king says to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Let's jump down to... Um, Verse 41. 
Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And so we see in this passage that there's a a revelation, if you will, a revealing of who is who. Who's crossed, who's not. So we've got sheep. In this you know, example, in the metaphor of sheep, God's people uh, who will receive, and that's you know the promises we talked about uh, last time we met. They'll receive a new body, they'll receive uh, a place in the new kingdom or creation, eternal life united with their creator the way it was intended to be. And then you've got who Jesus calls the goats or the people that aren't his, and, and they're not promised a new body. You ever thought about that? I think a lot of times when we, and we'll get to hell in a minute, but a lot of times we think about hell and we think about a physical reality, but they're not even promised. I mean, we're promised a new body, and, and they're not. So I don't know, you know what that means for them. But I hope not to find out. <laughs> so are they're not granted entrance to the new kingdom, new creation, eternal life, presence of God, all those promises that are there for God's people are not there for people who aren't God's people. All right, and then the last thing I wrote down is Savior Judge. And what I meant by that is exactly what we were, what Donna brought up a minute ago and we were talking about that he's not just the judge, he was also our Savior. He is our Savior. He's the one in whom we have all of our hope and he, the one who is our hope, is also our judge, and that's the best combination you could hope for. So this idea of judgment is ultimately the idea of setting things right. Like there's something wrong, there's something out of joint, and Christ is going to return and put it all back in joint. Um, You know, I was thinking of, because, you know, we don't tend to long for judgment or be excited about it. Uh, but so I was trying to think of examples, you know, because there's a lot. We have lots of stories about justice and things like that. And I thought about that, this western that Julie and I like, and maybe you've seen it. It's kind of a classic, Magnificent Seven. If you haven't seen Magnificent Seven, go see it. Just for the music, about that. And uh, and and Julie thinks that Yul Brynner is good looking, so we watch it a lot. No. <laughs> I'm okay with it because I think he's dead, but anyway. (laughs) Anyway. um, (laughs) So in the Magnificent Seven, there's this little town in Mexico that, uh, you know, this band of gangsters basically uh, ride into town once a year or so, and they take what they want to take. And they basically kind of enslave these people um, because they've got the guns and they've got the power and they're big, bad, mean bullies and so they just ride into town and, and take what they want and then they ride off and plunder somewhere else and so this <coughs> poor village of poor farmers works their hands to the bone each year for a harvest and then they can never get ahead they can barely survive because these people keep coming in and taking all that they have and so they go in search of some help and they find they end up with the Magnificent Seven, led by Will Brenner, and he rides into town and cleans things up. <laughs> and there's just this sigh of relief at the end of the, of the movie, because, oh, 
you know, the injustice has been wiped out, the evil has been uprooted, and they're going to have their lives back again, all's going to be set right now, thanks to justice being served. And so, I mean, think of that kind of thing on a, on a cosmic scale, right? I mean, in, in Magnificent Seven, it's a, it's a Western thing, so there's, you know, six guns flying and all that. But, you know, think of that storyline writ large, global, universal, and, and, then, and then add to that, you know, some of the, that's where you get some of the apocalyptic imagery, right, of fire and, and stars falling out of the sky and utter darkness and worms and I mean, just all this imagery that you get because they're telling the story on a huge scale. Uh, of that, but it's the same story of everything is set wrong, but justice is going to come down and is going to set things right. And, and so when we talk about judgment and we talk about all that, and we talk about a story like the Magnificent Seven, well, you have to talk about God's wrath because that goes hand in hand with judgment. So let's talk about wrath for a minute. What do you think of when you think of God's wrath? What was that? Wrath. <laughs> Anything else? I think of lightning, I think. You know, like, uh, whenever I say something that someone thinks is a little sacrilegious, they move away from me because they don't want to be struck, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not sure where we got that vision. I think that's more of a Zeus thing, isn't it? Throwing down lightning bolts, but... The thing about God's wrath is there's a sense in which it's already been unfolding and is and will continue. So first thing we're going to write about is that God's wrath is past, present, and future. And we're going to, in Romans 1 in a minute, we're going to kind of see that God's wrath has already been being poured out in a sense. And so, you know, there's there's definitely a final judgment and there's some final wrath that comes with that, no doubt. But to understand God's wrath, we can look at how it's already been playing out. And so that's one of the things we're going to do. And when you when we read Revelation and books like that or apocalyptic things that talk about God's wrath unfolding and pouring out on the world one thing we need to remember is that God's wrath has already been being, I mean, we're going to read in Romans 1 where Paul writes God's wrath is being poured out like present tense and so and it doesn't, all, it doesn't look like fire when Paul describes it so we're going to see what that looks like and sounds like and so when we read Revelation we read this progression of God's wrath, we need to remember that uh, you know, it's not only talking about future events all the time it's, there's a leading up to there's a current, there's a past, present and future part of God's wrath uh, so I mean part of revelation uh, for us now is historical and, and part of its future and so sometimes it's hard to kind of distinguish what's what but and some of it's both. And 
Like I say, it's fun stuff. Okay, so, um, you know, the, our imagery with God's wrath is often, uh, we, we call to mind those apocalyptic terms of fire and brimstone and bloody battle, but some of the passages that we might call clearer that aren't apocalyptic in nature describe God's wrath a different way. So let's look at Romans 1, instead of just talking about it. And this is another one where I'll probably kind of jump around a little bit, but we'll start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God not will one day be revealed at the final judgment is revealed. And that and Paul was writing obviously, you know, about 2,000 years ago. So what does he mean? He goes on to say, you know, that people rejected God and they chose to worship created things instead of the Creator. And in verse 24 starts kind of a pattern. Therefore God, what? Gave them over. In the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26 for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper and be filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. There are all these things unloving, unmerciful, uh, all who practice such things are worthy of death. This image of God's wrath is a little bit different than, you know, the fire and brimstone image, right? But I don't think it's any less terrifying. Because, and we'll see some more aspects of it, but especially when we get into hell. But there's this ultimately this separation, this you know, I mean God says, Okay, you rejected me, fine. Have it your way, you don't have to have anything to do with me. And the road that that leads down, the natural consequences that that takes is terrifying because we were created to live a certain way. When we don't live that certain way, then brokenness and death and lots of ugliness enters the world. And we can just look around our world and see what brokenness leads to and and what evil leads to. And so, you know, if you take away all the good in the world and just let evil run wild, you know, and, and God gets uninvolved and takes his hands off. I mean, if that happened on an ultimate level, what would that look like? You know, what would, uh, it, would not be, it would not be pretty. That's the description Paul gives of God's wrath. In some sense, um, the, so there's a question mark there that says fire, question mark. And if you need to add some of these things, if you need to add notes on why in the world you wrote down fire question mark, feel free to. But, uh, you know, we don't know whether 
the fire is purely imagery or whether there will be fire involved in the process at some point. But um, the point being that a lot of times imagery like that is used to describe something that we don't understand, can't understand. You know, like I said, final judgment, final wrath is you know people are going to be experiencing that who have not had any promise of a physical body, and so if they're just a spirit, what then what does that look like? Does fire even affect a spirit? You know, like literal fire. And the way, and so this is imagery used for us to understand that it's going to be a bad deal. You know that uh, that when God hands them over, gives them over to uh, what they took instead of him, it's not going to be good. There's an aspect of God's wrath that seems to be saving and delivering. And those are the last two blanks under wrath. Uh, let's look at Second Peter 3.7. Uh, and this says... Uh, Peter just got done saying verse 6 uh, talking about God's wrath playing out in the Noah account and how the world was at that time destroyed being flooded with water and then he says by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the judgment and, and destruction of ungodly men and you know, so there's a there's an echo of water and fire. But when you think about the Noah narrative, the purpose was justice, yes, but it was also um, a saving, a delivering of Noah's family. There, there was a, a hope aspect to it. And when we look, we kind of see this echoed again in Revelation. If you go to Revelation 18, I was surprised by this. I had never. Uh, sorry, Revelation 11, 13. We skipped around. So this is in kind of in the midst of some of the judgment and wrath narrative in Revelation. And it says, in that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And there's this interesting, in this commentary that I was reading, said uh, that we should not mistake the powerful impact of the symbolism in verse 13 there. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he's, he said he would have spared it if ten righteous persons were found there. Now, however, only one-tenth of this wicked city described in verse 13 falls. And when God was judging Israel through Elijah, only 7,000 were left who had not bowed the knee to the pagan god Baal. But now, however, it's only 7,000 who are killed, and the great majority are to be rescued. So suddenly, out of the smoke and fire of the earlier chapters, a vision is emerging of you know, God rescuing people. And somehow through God's wrath, there are people who are, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, is what it says. And so there's an aspect of God's wrath that hopes to bring people into a saving relationship. 
And the delivering thing, you know, a lot of the the imagery in Revelation that talks as the as these different bowls of wrath are poured out, you know, there's different plagues that happen. And it's very reminiscent of the Exodus, where, you know, the plagues keep coming. It's the same kind of plague, hail and locusts and all that kind of stuff. We read about it in Revelation. It's it's a very much an echo of what happened with the Exodus and Moses and 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 the whole point of the Exodus was to deliver God's people. And likewise, in Revelation, the description is, you know, we're, all this is happening so that we can deliver my people. And, you know, again, the whole, the whole point is God is, you know, just as with Israel, the hope was that he would get this people that would be his people and they would go into this land that was the promised land and wipe every bit of evil out of it so that it could just be God's people living in a place without evil and, and being a light to the world and that didn't all play out right because they didn't destroy all the evil and they did chase after the evil around them and so forth but this is the perfected ultimate plan and but, so you know it's kind of an echo of that but, so when we think about God's judgment and his wrath it's not just a, a punishment of the evil but it's, it serves a purpose of saving and delivering as well it's a, there's, a, there's a positiveness to it there's a positive reason for it. You might even say that it's because of God's mercy and love that judgment and wrath takes place so that more can be saved. So we need to move from judgment dread to judgment hope. But I wanted, you know, along with this to talk about hell for a minute because uh, just you can't hardly talk about judgment without talking about you know, we already talked about the heaven aspect a couple of weeks ago. So there's a, there's a flip side of that. So how do you view hell? What are the things you think of when you think about hell? What's it going to be like? <laughs> Where is it going to be? Just according to common, you know, down there. And who's there? <laughs> The guy with the pitchforks there. I, I just remember as a kid, I was digging in the yard or something, and, and dug into some coal. Why? You know, because I, I lived in North Alabama and it was cold, and I was scared to death. And I was like, I'm going to do more. Oh, man. Um, I would say chances are that hell is. Nothing like what we've imagined and probably completely different and worse than our minds can conceive. I'm going to tell you something that's, uh, that you may or may not know. That every time, you know, Jesus mentions hell uh, quite a few times actually, about 11 times that we have recorded. But every time he says the word hell, that as it's recorded in your Bible, uh, there may be a couple of translations that have the, the actual word he's saying. Uh, I don't know which ones those are, but the actual word is Gehenna. And there's other names for this. You can read about it in your Old Testament. For It's sometimes called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. It's sometimes called Topheth. It's, it's a location outside of Jerusalem that has a rough history. And the first 
mentioning of it that we have in the Bible is it's a place where pagan worship took place in Israel where they would go out and and they would worship these pagan gods and it involved child sacrifice it involved a lot of things that were um, despicable to God and so God through uh, prophets like Jeremiah uh, in fact you may remember the week that we talked about the pot and the clay uh, on during our me and God are like series and we read a passage where Jeremiah walks out with a pot and they walk out into this valley and he tells the people there that because of the wickedness that you've done here uh, this is where you're going to bury your dead. And he breaks this pot and says, you're just going to be shattered like this pot and no one's going to be able to put you back together. And it's, it's a judgment thing, you know. And he says, uh, they will bury the dead in this valley until there's no more room. And later, that when that prophecy takes, you know, is fulfilled, Babylon comes and there's this huge siege and warfare. The uh, Israelite people... I mean, the, the imagery is, is rough. They were starving. They were driven to cannibalism. It was, I mean, it, as terrible as war can get, they experienced it there. And this valley came to represent, you know, because of the prophecies and everything that took place there, this was, I mean, you could call it a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and fire. And, I mean, just because that's what happened there. And there was evil that happened there, and that's where it was punished. And uh, fast forward to Jesus, and this place has all this history. And there's a tradition. Uh, I don't know that we have any actual hard historical evidence, but um, the tr- Christian tradition holds that that valley became a rubbish heap <coughs> during, uh, like, the Roman occupation of Israel, and that's where they threw the dead bodies of criminals or just trash. That's uh, where they burn stuff and I mean just the rubbish heap if you will and that would make sense with a lot of the imagery that Jesus uses with when he talks about Gehenna you know he talks about the worms and the fire and it's not a pretty picture you know Um, so when your Bible you know when you read in your Bible and Jesus says the word hell He's actually talking about a place that those people had in their minds and knew the history of it. I mean, so he's pulling on a, on a specific image, you know, a specific place that he was referring to. Do you think he literally meant that when you die, you go to that valley? <laughs> you know, um, no more than, the, you know, and somehow from that we've gotten the the idea that it's under the earth, you know, with the coal. <laughs> and uh, so, clearly, Jesus is using this place as a metaphor to help us understand what it's like when you've rejected God and God gives you over to that. And, it, and it's like you're thrown into the heap. Hell is where Satan and his demons are headed. Um, it's also where death is thrown in Revelation. So I'd put Satan and death's destination, or you can put demons and death or whatever you want to call it, but it's where Satan and his crew go. That's where uh, death is thrown. And the imagery of Scripture is into hell, into Gehenna. 
this place that no one would want to be. You remember that passage where Jesus, uh, we, we were reading it uh, with regard to all that, uh, when we were kind of debunking the rapture thing, we talked about how it's good to be left behind, bad to be taken. And one of the, the disciples asked him, where are they taken? And, and Jesus said, well, where, something like where the bodies are, there'll be vultures or something like that, you know. Um, again, that really fits well with the tradition, you know, that holds that Gehenna was the place where they threw the criminal bodies and stuff like that. Um, it's a place of death, of decay, of birds of carrion go there. It's, that's the imagery that's used. And we also do get some imagery of, um, you know, punishment and fire and, and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all those things that go along with it as well. Uh, one thing we know for sure is that it involves separation from God. Uh, in that passage we read just a moment ago, Matthew 25, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats, depart from me. There's no, you know, to the one he says, welcome to the kingdom. To the other, depart from me. They have no place in the kingdom. They're separated from God. He's, they're sent out. Uh, look up, uh, someone look up Second uh, Thessalonians 1.9 for us. The evil pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. One more time. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Some versions actually say separated from His glory and His power and His presence. So, clearly, one thing we know for sure is that you're separated from God. And when we look and we pair that with God's wrath being described as a, as a turning over, we can assume that uh, God sends them out, turns them over to, and it's a place where there's utter evil. And that's what it is, you know, because there is no goodness of God there. Uh, there's some things we don't know about it, and those are the things with your question marks. We don't know where it is. We don't know whether hell is a physical place or a spiritual state or what. We're just told that they're taken. We're told that you know where the bodies are. They're the vultures. When they ask where, uh, which you know again seems to be harkening to some kind of scene like that Gehenna. It's a scene of death and all that, but we don't know exactly where. And like, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. So another thing we don't know is the nature of it. Uh, again, there's no promise anywhere that I've found that they're going to have a physical body. They're not promised a resurrected new body when they die. They're spiritual. They're spirits. We assume go on. And we don't know what what that looks like. How, how is someone like that? How, you know, how are they tormented? Or We don't know. Uh, there's... Since we don't know much about the spiritual world, we don't know much about that world. We don't know the nature of it. Um, we don't also we don't know the duration of it. 
And most people will tell you that it's, you know, it's set, and Jesus says eternal punishment in one spot. And so maybe it is eternal that they, their souls last forever and, they, and, and they're tormented forever. But most of the stuff that you read is about death and decaying and perishing and you know, how, how do you die forever? I don't know, you know. And so I'm not sure of, you know, a lot of people, that's a big hang-up for them is, you know, how could God, you know, they have this picture of God pushing the button to, to torture people for all of eternity or something, you know. And, and how does that work and how does that look like? But, again, most of what I read about it says, uh, you know, it talks about eternal destruction, or it'll talk about the fires never go out. You know, it's this lake of fire that burns forever, and Satan and all and death is going there, and 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 then other people that mess up, they'll be thrown there too. Um, but like, take John three sixteen, for instance. We say it all the time. We hear it all the time. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, I mean, the insinuation there is you either have everlasting life if you believe in, in God or you perish. And so, you know, is that just talking about physical life? I don't, you know, there's a lot of questions we don't know and a lot of answers we don't have. But what we do know is that if for those who reject God flatly, they want nothing to do with it. God is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on them. And if they want a life apart from him, they'll get a life apart from him. And it's described in terms that don't make it sound hospitable. What time is it? Man, I had a video I was going to show you, and I had some Q&A kind of stuff. So we may pick up on this a little bit at our next session and kind of wrap it up. Uh, where we can, I'll show the video and answer some questions that you guys had had. Uh, Aaron's not here anyway, and he had one of the questions, so give it another week. So next week is Faith Promise Weekend, and um, the youth will be in the youth room with uh, John Simmons is scheduled to hang out with you guys, and the, and Amanda Simmons is scheduled to hang out with the kids in here. And the joy class will be over there, and the thrive class will be in your normal classroom. So it's a, it's a faith promise every week, every year. It's, everything gets shuffled around a little bit. But we'll reshuffle into here and finish this series up in a, in a couple more weeks after, uh, after that.